Good morning, College Park. I invite you to take your Bibles and go over to Colossians chapter 1 and um, verses 15 and 16 is our text this morning. As you're doing that, two things just to highlight this morning that are not related to the sermon, but very much related to the body life of the uh, ministry here. As you came in this morning, you should have received one of these uh, College Park cards. We distributed these last week, and I asked you, and many of you did this, thank you, to encourage our, our senior staff. Their names are listed there in the bulletin. The reason is that I've just completed uh, now my fifth week uh, here at College Park, and uh, one of the things that's just so evident and clear to me that uh, through the transition season, you had uh, wonderful men filling the pulpit here. You had an incredible team behind the scenes doing counseling and taking care of all the administrative things, and I just want you to encourage their hearts and say, yeah, we see that, we saw that, it's awesome, thank you. And, you know, maybe you want to put in a little gift card to send one of them out to dinner, just to say, hey, take your wife out and just bless them in some way. So take that card, if you would, and just jot them a note. This is your last Sunday during the sermon time to do that. Um, and then you have no passes from this point forward. And uh, there's a box out in the back that you can uh, put those in. So please uh, do that today, if you would. The second thing is, I want you just to pray for us as a staff uh, this coming Wednesday, we're going to do something that uh, I'm really excited about. Uh, we are going to be closing the uh, church office. There'll be someone to answer phones, but all of our full and part-time staff are going to be together for a full day of prayer. All we're doing is going to be seeking the face of God together by using scripture, song, and spontaneous prayer. We're calling it just kind of our staff day of prayer. We're going to seek the face of God during the entire day on Wednesday from 8.30 all the way to 4.30. And I just want you to pray that God would just use that time just to fill us up. I want you to pray that God would just make our hearts just so full of Him and that we could just experience the fullness of Christ. Uh, when you're in ministry and laboring day in and day out, it's good every once in a while to take a break and say, let's just be in the presence of God. And I have found in my own life that there's nothing better than a, just a concerted, um, separated time just to say, God, we're hungry, we want you, and we want just to spend time in your presence. I found if we can just get out of the way and let God speak to his people, let them speak to him, amazing things happen. So I want you to pray to that end, will you, on Wednesday for our staff. And uh, just so you know, we're going to be collecting all cell phones at the door, so they won't be accessible. So you have to leave a voicemail, things of that sort. But just give them the freedom and the opportunity to uh, be able just to seek the face of God together. So pray Wednesday if you would. All right, Colossians 1, verse 15 and 16. Here's our text. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So Father, would you please now take this this text, these two verses, loaded with such great material. Material, Lord, that I don't even know that I can fully explain the beauty of what is here. I pray, Lord, for the ability to navigate the waters of the paradox between things that are too lofty for us to understand and life that's too hard for us not to. And so we, we need your help, Christ, to know how these things work in our lives, what they mean and how they apply from... Uh, the various stages of life that we're all in. So, Spirit of God, please, please make these glorious things that blow our minds real and understandable 
and applicable. Help us to leave here with one thought from you, from your word, for our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to do something kind of different this morning. Um, you know, I'm always up here, so I never get to see these people in the back. So I'm going to go back here, okay? So um, you guys at Columbus and everything else, you're like, oh, rats. We didn't sit back here for this, right? I'm just going to preach my entire message. No, I won't. I'm just kidding. So every once in a while, someone will ask me, hey, Mark, what's your favorite hymn? And I have one. Do you guys have one? A favorite hymn? Can you think of one? So someone in this group, tell me your favorite hymn. Come now, foul, it is well with my soul. Crowning with many crowns. Good. You know what mine is? Mine is fairest Lord Jesus. And by the way, I put that in my message before I knew we were going to sing it. Isn't that a coincidence? Wow, that's really lucky, isn't it? (laughs) Ever since I was a little boy, I don't know why, but I chose that particular um, hymn as kind of like my my mantra. And uh, the text of it is, is so powerful and so significant. Look at it. Fairest Lord Jesus, ruler of all nature, O thou of God and man the Son, thee will I cherish, thee will I honor, thou my soul's glory, joy, and crown. Age 10, I chose this song. This is my song. Beautiful Savior, Lord of the nation, Son of God and Son of man, glory and honor, praise and adoration. Now and forevermore be thine. One of the reasons that I love songs like this that have a good meter, a good melody, and good doctrine is because they help us. They, they help us to crystallize things that we believe in a succinct and clear manner. Eight lines, and that captures my heart. I want to be the kind of person that now and forevermore, I want glory and honor to spring from my heart. And the beautiful thing about a well-written song or a well-written creed is that it captures in a very clear and concise formula or statement, in this case eight lines, what it is that we hold dear. And this morning in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, we're going to begin uh, examining what is a creed or a hymn or some sort of song that was inserted into Colossians chapter 1. What you're going to see in this text over the next three weeks is the way in which the Apostle Paul takes these um, five verses of 15 through 20 and he uses them as a succinct summary of what this church needs to believe. And it's really important that we understand what he's saying here because Paul gives the church this succinct summary as their creed or their hymn because he's in a battle. He's in a battle for their hearts and minds. The Colossian heresy was wreaking difficulties and problems and havoc in the church. This idea that that Christ wasn't the center and and it was more important to worship angels or powers or principalities. And and Paul cuts right to the heart with this section. And it's unique than, than any other section in the book of Colossians. And frankly, it's a unique section in all of the Bible. It's one of the most Jesus centered, Christologically deep passages that we have in the New Testament. And so we're going to take three weeks to uh, actually examine this. We're going to move along a little bit of a snail's pace because what's in this text is so unbelievably important, so doctrinally deep. Frankly, I don't know that we have even words to fully capture what is in the content of these verses that are in front of us. The language, the structure, the wording of the book, all of this passage rather, all point to the preeminence of Christ. 
In verse 15, he begins with the little phrase, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And then it ends, the stanza ends at verse 18, where it says he's the head of the body, the church. And then notice the parallelism in verse 18, where again we see he is, is the start of the second verse, he is the beginning, the firstborn, you saw that word before, the firstborn from the dead. And then notice how it ends, by making peace by the blood of his cross. So what happens in this, this wonderful hymn, or this creed. We're not exactly sure whether it's a hymn or a creed. We don't know if Paul wrote it previously or if he just inserted it in there. It could have even been an ancient hymn that was sung in the early church and Paul quoted it. We don't know. Though the fact is, the point that Paul uses it for is obvious. And that is he wants to crystallize what this church should believe to guard them from error. To be able to help them to know what is it that they should cherish and love about Christ. What is, if you will, the core of the core. So this morning we're going to dial into the core of the core. If Jesus is the center of the universe, our aim through this series has been to figure out what does it mean to live with Jesus at the center, then this particular passage, or these verses rather, the entire section, verses 15 to 20, they help us to know what is the core of the core. Or when it really comes down to Jesus, what's the stuff that you really got to know about him? And let me tell you why this is important. Because there's a lot of heretical teaching, a lot of bad stuff that's out there in our culture. Wouldn't you agree? And you could spend a lifetime trying to figure it all out. You could become an expert in the cults and all the heresies, and you could spend hours and hours and hours. In fact, some of you may come to church on a weekly basis, and you're just like, I I can't do that. I, I, I can't learn enough. I can't learn fast enough. Let me tell you what all of us should do. From the newest believer to the oldest believer. You may not be able to know all that there is to know about the cults or heretical teachings. Nothing wrong with studying that stuff. But there's one thing that every one of us should know. And that is what is the core about Christ. If you know him and you know him well. And you know what the Bible says about him. Then you're able to process all this other stuff. And you go, no I don't know why but that's not right. Here's what Jesus is all about, and I don't know what this thing is, but I can't figure it out. You may be smarter than me, but what I know is I know Jesus, and that's not him. So that's real simple, isn't it? But it's also real important. And so this morning we're going to begin this uh, little uh, examination of these verses. First this morning by looking at Jesus as the source, or rather the supreme ruler over everything. And then we're going to look at Jesus as the source, that everything flows from him. He holds it all together. And then we're going to end by seeing he's the Savior. He's the one that redeemed us. And and why those three things are so important as a creed, as as the heart of what we hold dear. So there's two questions that are asked in this text. Really, the questions are, who is Jesus and what did Jesus do? And really, those are two key questions that everyone should know the answer to. Who is Jesus and what did he do? And that's how we're going to examine this passage this morning. First, notice it says that he is the image of the invisible God. That's who he is. And secondly, it tells us that he's the firstborn of all creation. So who is Jesus? He's two things. First, he's image of the invisible God. And secondly, he's the firstborn of all creation. So what does it mean that Jesus is the image of the invisible God? What does that mean? Well, we have to begin with the fact that that God, by definition, God, by definition, is invisible. The Bible tells us that no one can see God. Exodus 33, when Moses asked if he could see God, God told him, no one can see me, Moses. 
And the reason that no one can see God is because God is infinitely holy and man is sinful. And for for man to gaze upon God would would result in his utter destruction. In fact, one of the beautiful things about glory will be that we will be able to see him, the Bible says, because we will be like him. That's beautiful. We're able to see him because we'll be like him. But until then, the Bible tells us that God is invisible. But just because he's invisible doesn't mean that he isn't real or that he doesn't exist. You see, God operates in a world, in a realm, that if we could even understand a part of it would blow our minds. We operate, and think of God's invisibleness in this way, that God operates outside of the kind of world that we know. We know three dimensions, right? We know length and height and depth. Three dimensions, three-dimensional objects, material stuff that we can grab a hold of. But God operates in dimensions that make three dimensions laughable. He operates in a realm that is so beyond three dimensions, God is supreme and sovereign and above all of those dimensions. Now, when I was preparing the sermon and thinking about dimensions, and about a fourth dimension and fifth dimension, I kept hearing this little thing that was going on in my head. And it was like this. Remember that? That? It's the what? The Twilight Zone. Right. So, 1950s, big, big show, and then had a comeback in the 80s when I'm about um, 10 years old, and my dad and I used to sit around watching the Twilight Zone. You know, the guy was, you're up to enter the Twilight Zone. The door would open, right? He's on the fourth dimension, this realm that's behind the realm that we live in that has whole, a whole sorts of new reality. When it comes to God, there's just not a fourth dimension, like a Twilight Zone, There's not even a fifth dimension. God operates in a realm where dimensions don't even fit with who he is. So for him to be invisible, it's not just that he's real and can't be seen. No, it's far beyond that. It's that God looks at three dimensions and laughs at three dimensions. God is infinitely beyond any dimensional categories. And therefore, when you have a God like this, that his son becomes human. So you have the Father, Son, and Spirit that are beyond any level of dimension categorizing, and we have Christ who now enters into a three-dimensional world and becomes a child. Is it any wonder that the Bible says that was humiliating for him? It was humbling. Here's a thought. Jesus, as a man, is most humbled when he looks like you. Hmm. Remind that to your own heart. Next time you look in the mirror and you go, man, I'm looking good, right? Just remember that Jesus, when he was humbled, looked like you. Because why? Because here is the infinite God who's not able to be contained in any dimension or any categories who becomes a man and enters into our world. Now, if I were to ask you, why did Jesus become a man? You would probably correctly say, He became a man so he could die on the cross to make atonement for our sins. And that would be true, but it wouldn't be complete. You see, there was another reason why Jesus became a man, and it relates to this idea of being the image of the invisible. It means that Jesus, by becoming a man, lived in such a way that God could say to us, if you want to know what I'm like, look at my son. If you want to know what it's like, For me to be God, and what is central to my heart, and what is the essence of my character, all you need to do is look at my son's life. 
And in that way, the Bible tells us that Jesus was the image of the invisible God. Jesus is as close as we can get to understanding and knowing what God is like. So if you want to know what God is like, you have to look at the life of Jesus. You have to see what the Bible tells us about Jesus. Look at John chapter 1 and verse 14. Great parallel passage here. John, trying to capture the person of Christ, says the Word, this is John 1, John 1, 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the Word, this non-able-to-be-categorized, non-dimensional God, becomes flesh, dwells among us, and then it says this, and we have seen His glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then John goes on in verse 18 to say, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, but He has made Him known. Jesus even said to His disciples in John 14, verse 9, He said, whoever has seen Me has seen the Father. Whoever's seen me, so if you want to know what the Father is like, if you've seen me, you've seen how I've acted, what I'm like, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And then also in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6, listen to this one. It says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Just savor that. To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So, Jesus, by virtue of his life, so when you, when you read the Bible and you see how Paul describes him, or you see him in the uh, four Gospels, don't just read that as, oh, that's interesting how Jesus acted. That's interesting what Jesus did. The call to become like Jesus is the call to become like the one who imaged God to mankind. For God says, if you want to know what I'm like, look at my son. He's also then called not only the image, but also he's called the firstborn of all creation. Now the word firstborn is interesting. Because it creates some early and maybe even incorrect ideas about what this word would mean. Because firstborn seems to imply uh, that someone is created. Like my firstborn son by 20 minutes is Hayden. And my secondborn son is Joseph. Hayden is my firstborn, so he wasn't and then he was. But that's not the idea of what it means for Jesus to be the firstborn. To be firstborn in this context means that Jesus is first in rank. He's first in honor. He's first in power. He's first in rights as the heir of all things. So it's, it's more of a positional term referring to Jesus's um, non-created quality. The fact that Jesus always existed and the fact that he's first in rank and first in priority. Similar to how you would refer to the wife of the president. You would call her the what? The first lady. doesn't mean she's the only lady. It means that, or that she was the first first lady, but it means that she's first in rank. Something uh, kind of funny happened at um, my former church one time. We had kind of an old school preacher who was there with us and he thanked me as the pastor for letting him come. And then he looked right at my wife and he said, and I'd like to thank the first lady for letting me come too. And the first, the whole church just burst out in laughing, the laughter, thinking that he'd called my wife the first lady. Because he's like, don't call her first lady, man. She's Sarah or the mom of my kids, not the first lady, okay? 
What was he trying to do? He was trying to give her honor. That's what the word means. Firstborn means honor. It means first in rank, first in um, power. It means that Jesus exists before creation, and it means that he is then also the rightful heir to creation. Look at Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 2. There's a great cross-reference with this. Hebrews 1 and verse 2 says this, But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom He created the world. Now, don't miss the parallels between this passage and Colossians 1. He appointed heir of all things, through whom He created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. Do you see it? And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Wow, it's awesome. It is that Jesus is the image of the invisible. He, he explains to the world what God is like. He exists prior to creation. He's the radiance of the glory of God. So if you want to know what is the glory of God like, what is, what is God and in His infinite, infinite beauty all about, you need look no further than the person of Jesus. So when you put all this together... Verse 15 is basically saying that Jesus is the full disclosure of God to man. He's the image of the invisible. He, he's the one who is the firstborn in rank and in power. He's the heir of all things. And what happens in verse 15, it's as though the Apostle Paul it uses these few words to capture the heart and soul of what Jesus is all about. And he begins this wonderful treatise on the core of what Christ really is, with He's the image and He's the firstborn. Thirteen words. That's all He uses. Thirteen words to summarize the beauty of all that Jesus is. Now the second thing is, what did Jesus do? Look at verse 16. It tells us not only who He is, He's the image of the invisible God, He's the firstborn of all creation, but then we find out what He does. And the first thing we see is that Jesus is defined as the Creator. The text says, For by Him all things were created. By Him all things were created. And then if you look at the end, you'll see the same thing, but in a different way said. It says, All things were created through Him. Now you'd think that these things mean the same thing, but they don't. To be created through Him means that these things were created by means of His power meaning that everything that is created happened because of Jesus. Or anything that is only took place because of Him. Implication of that is everything that He has made, He owns. If I make something, I own it. So Jesus creates from nothing and makes everything that is, and thereby everything is made through Him. But the word by in verse 16 is really important. Because if you were to look back up in chapter 1 and verse 4, where it says faith in Christ, the word in Christ and by Him is the same little Greek word. And before we told you in chapter 1 and verse 4 that faith in Christ doesn't just mean faith into Christ. No, it means faith in the realm of Christ. Meaning, when I receive Christ and I'm in Christ, that now it's this faith that springs from my relationship with Jesus. So how does that relate to creation? Here's how that relates. It means that absolutely everything that he created, everything that exists, exists in the realm of Christ. In the same way that we are all in the auditorium, or the sanctuary, or the worship center, whatever your term is. 
everything that's happening here is happening inside of the walls of this facility. And when it comes to in Christ or by Him, it means that everything that is happens inside the realm of who Jesus is. So it's not just that He has this physical body, but it's that Christ's rule, His reign, His supremacy is such that everything that exists happens under the banner of His Lordship. And that's very important for us to know that there is nothing that is that's outside of the realm of Christ saying, that belongs to me. So you remember that statement that Abraham Kuyper made that we saw in the video when we started the whole series? He said there's not one square inch on planet Earth over which Jesus Christ does not say, mine, that's true, but it needs to go much larger than just Earth. It means that the farthest reaches of the galaxy all are underneath the banner of Christ's Lordship. That He is supreme and He reigns and everything that is exists underneath and in and inside of what it means for Christ to be Christ. Now, we don't even have words to describe that. That's, that's like talking about a six-dimensional object with three-dimensional language. I can't fully capture for you the significance of all of that, but it simply means that Jesus made and owns anything. That there's nothing that is that happened apart from His action, and nothing exists that is apart from His rule. Now, Nothing is ever dynamic until it's specific, and Paul gets very specific. It's almost like he says, okay, let me help you understand this. What I mean is, for by him all things were created, and then he lists some things. Things like, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. So he says, look, everything that's in heaven, everything you can see uh, up in the sky, everything that's on earth, Jesus, it's all in him and by him and through him. Everything that's visible and everything that's invisible, All these things are owned and controlled and created by him. And the reason he's making a big deal about this is these people were getting involved in this kind of mystical worship angels as if they were higher than Christ. And Paul cuts right through that and says, all those things exist in Christ. You're talking about a dot on a massive sphere. These things were created by him and through him. And as we'll see in a moment, and for him. And what Paul does here is it helps us to understand the the, the depth and the breadth of what it is that Jesus' supremacy is all about. In other words, everything in every realm owes its life and therefore its allegiance to Christ. Why was the fall of Satan so tragic? It was because something creator created said to its creator, I want to be like you. And God said, boom. And that's the essence of sin, isn't it? The attempt to usurp God's authority. And Paul says, the essence of what Christ is, is that he rules and reigns over everything. And then to make it even more clear, he says, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. He's talking about a spiritual realm, an unseen world. Now, we don't know exactly why he puts these four things and don't make too much of the order. Don't, like, pull a Frank Peretti on me with this, okay? Don't don't make a whole lot of this structure. The point is, is that everything that's in this unseen world, and these are various authority realms, that all of these authorities are still underneath the banner of Christ. His point is that even 
bad spiritual forces, the worst the devil can throw at you, the most despicable and, and, and devious of all demons, even they are under the control, the banner, and the supremacy of Christ. Oh, sure, he's given them some leash, but mark me, they are on a chain. Therefore, everything in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, all spiritual forces, from the highest to the lowest, bend the knee to Christ. Everything was made to be under his banner. He made it. He owns it. And then there's one more. And this one, my heart says, mmm. Everything was made for him. That's incredible. It says all things were created through him and for him. Do you know that everything that exists in the world, everything, from the tiniest little cricket to the newest baby to the oldest senior saint, everything that exists, exists for one reason. And you know what it is? It exists for the glory of Jesus Christ. That's why you were created. You weren't created for your own glory. You were created for God's glory, specifically created for the glory of Christ. And you will glorify Christ. Listen, you will glorify Christ. You will glorify Him in one of two ways. Either you will glorify Him by bending the knee, confessing your sin, receiving Him as Savior, having His righteousness imputed to you, and out of the overflow of goodness that flows from your heart because of His righteousness in you, you thereby glorify Christ. That's one way. The other way you glorify Christ is by rejecting that, and you end up spending eternity in hell, and your sins are punished, and the punishment of sin ends up glorifying the righteousness of God. So everyone glorifies Christ. It's just a matter of how you glorify Christ. And our pleading heart with you this morning would be, do not be one of those who by your own decision choose to resist the gracious hand of your Savior and thereby end up glorifying Him in eternal hell. You see, Christ will be glorified, He will be honored, He will be exalted, and everything in life is designed to be for Him. And sometimes the Bible just runs into this with such power, like Romans 9-11. through Some of the most mind-blowing texts in all of the Bible, where Paul gets to the end of this chapter about things that we can't even understand, and we get to the end and he says this, For of Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things. He ran out of words. He didn't know what to say anymore. Okay, let's summarize this way. Of Him and to Him and through Him are all things, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. You see, what happens is that we see that Christ is the image, the firstborn, the source, the focal point. He's all of these things. Or let's just boil it down this way. He's the core. Okay? Let's get that, shall we? Let's get that. That Jesus is the core. And the more we understand about Him, the more we understand about His various roles in creative history, the more we understand about His role in our lives, the more we understand about how central He is, the more our hearts love to sing and worship and praise and magnify His name. Jesus is the one thing that the more you know about Him, the more you love Him. And sometimes we just run out of words. Some of you probably heard the three-minute explanation of Jesus Christ by a preacher named Shadrach Meshach Lockridge. 
You know, black preachers have something over us white preachers. They can just say things, frankly, a lot better. I'm going to let S.M. Lockridge bless our hearts. Listen to this. My King. The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder, do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the aged. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you. Yes, he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't, you can't get him off of your hand. You can't outlive him and you can't live without him. Well, the Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. And the grave couldn't hold him. Yeah! You ever been in church and start going, woo, 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 Yeah. That's how I feel like. Yeah, that's my king. Right? That's right. There we go. That's my king. So here's the question. So what does this mean for us? 
Jesus is like this, and this is what he's done, and he's like this king, what does this mean? Number one, it means this. Jesus is the center. Deal with it. Now, I'm saying this edgy on purpose. Because here's the deal. Jesus is the center of the universe. You don't make him the center. You don't one day say, oh, now I agree. Now you're the center. No, he is the center. And every single person in this room has to deal with the fact that he's the center of the universe. He's king. He's sovereign. He's master. And he is either your savior or he is your judge. Jesus is the center, and every one of us has to deal with that. It's a non-negotiable thing that all of us must deal with. The second thing is that in order to know God, you must know Jesus. I can think of times when I've been very aware that God is real. Like the moment when our children were born. And I'm holding this child who I only could see in months before, little feet and arms sticking through my wife's skin. And like, wow, how does it not break like that, right? So I, I'm seeing this baby that comes out and I'm cutting the cord and I hear his or her cry for the first time. And my heart just says, how can anyone deny that God exists? How can you look at this child and say, God's not real? And if you want to know what God is like, if you want to know what he's all about, if you want to know that he is who he claims to be and know him, you have to know Jesus. There's no other way. The only way that you know God is to know his son. There's no other way, no other means, no other savior, no other pathway. It's one. So in order to know God, the Bible tells us Jesus is the only image of the invisible God. Third, life wasn't meant to work without Jesus. Can I add something? Therefore, stop doing it that way. Life was not meant to work without Jesus, so stop trying to live life without Christ. Meaning, if you know Christ as your Savior, if you've bent the knee to Him, then He takes everything in life and He transforms all of it. A few examples. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Hear me, husband, you won't know how to love your wife unless you know what Christ is like. Your goal is not to have a happy marriage. Your goal is to be Christ-like and then have a happy marriage. We get the things in reverse order. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. I can't submit to my husband. He's like this and like this. Right. That's why Paul says you submit as to the Lord. So you pray something like this. Lord, my husband isn't worthy of submission. We all know that. But we know that you are worthy, so I choose to submit to you. That's a good start. Don't do the head wag. Children are to obey their parents in the Lord. That the way that a child says, God, I love you. And Jesus, I magnify you. Is a child that says, Mom and Dad, I obey you. Show me a kid who doesn't obey his parents. I'll show you a kid who doesn't obey God. Servants, you got a boss. You are to serve with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. You don't just serve because of a promotion. You serve because it's as unto Christ. Relationships, we are to submit to one another as unto Jesus. We're to see people as our opportunity to submit and to love Christ. 
So you walk away from a relationship that doesn't go real well, or a conversation rather doesn't go real well. As you walk away, you say something like this, Jesus, I did that for you. That didn't go real well, but I still honored you. Or, Jesus transformed sexuality. When, when Paul was laboring to deal with the Corinthian church, he said, look, you're going and you're being immoral with prostitutes. Don't you know when you do that, Christ is right there with you. He says, you're members of the members of Christ. What you take and you unite to, you take Christ with. And he says, how can you do that? Christ redeems sex. Time, Ephesians 5, 17, make the most of your time understanding what the will of the Lord is. So take your life, take the stewardship of your time and say, God, I'm going to use my life as a stewardship of offering to you, Christ. Or just in case you would try and throw something else in there. Oh, well, the Bible talk about this. Colossians 3, 17 says, do everything in the name of Jesus. So here's the challenge. The challenge is to figure out how to do everything under the banner of Christ-centeredness. You see, our problem, church, is not, for those of us who know Christ, it's not that we don't know He's supreme. Look, we know Jesus is supreme. That's not our problem. Our problem is we, con- we convince ourselves that there's little buckets of our life that Jesus doesn't need to be a part of. And Jesus looks at our buckets and says, Look, I made that bucket. So I need to be there. Fourth, God's goal is to make me like Jesus. If, if Jesus is the image of the invisible God and Jesus fully manifests what the Father is like and God's goal then is to make me like Christ, that means that His ultimate aim in everything is to form me into Jesus' likeness. You ever said, God, what are you doing? You ever said that? I hope so because I've said that and I want to be like normal. So I hope a lot of you said it. What are you doing? Or I, I say this, I don't see any reason for this. There's always reason. And when my mind starts to think like that, i got to push it back and say, you know what, the reason that all of this is here is to make me like Christ. So I never need to wonder what God is up to. He is relentless in His pursuit to make me like His Son. The question is whether or not I get on board. And you know what I find? The faster I get on board, the better it is. Just to say, Lord, I don't know why I don't like this. This is hard. This is tough. Yeah, even the death of loved ones, cancer, difficulties, problems, business issues. I don't like this, but this will make me like Christ. And in the end, that's what I want. And here's the last one. It is this, that everything that happens in life must have Jesus' permission. Hear me. There is nothing that happens outside of the control and supremacy of Christ. Nothing. Even the devil's worst schemes and the enemy's most despicable devices and the most vehement and disgusting sins are still under the banner of Christ's lordship that one day he will say, I will make all this right. Every throne, every dominion, every every ruler, every power must bend the knee to Jesus. He is king and listen, the devil is not Free. He's not. One of my favorite poems is the book, The Mercy of God and the Misery of Job. It goes like this. I think God never laid aside the reins that lie against the neck of Satan or unfenced his pen to run at liberty, but only by the Lord's decree. Meaning, 
The devil can throw whatever he wants at his children, but there are reins that lie about his neck. And there's a time when God says, whoa, that's enough. God holds the reins. So you see how the centrality of Jesus relates to our lives? Every once in a while, it's good to come back to some some core things to remind our hearts that, look, in the midst of, of difficulties, we need to circle our minds and hearts around some core key ideas. Like like Jesus is the firstborn. He's the image. He's, he's the, the image of the invisible God. He's the ruler. He created everything. All things submit to him. In a dark day in Martin Luther's life, believing he was going to die, he wrote these words. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Preach that truth to your heart. Remind your soul when it's weary. No, His kingdom is forever. He's supreme. I don't see how, but I believe that He is. Because at the end of the day, the reality of who Jesus is, the power of what it means for the Spirit of God to be in us and through us through the person and work of Christ, means that Jesus is our King. He's supreme over everything. And the question that I would ask you this morning is this. Do you really know Him this way? Do you really? Because if he's supreme, then there's no little boxes, no little categories. Jesus owns all because he's the image of the invisible God. Lord Jesus, we ask this morning now that you take the reality of the Lordship of Christ and that you would apply it to the various compartments where we like to keep you out. Father, right now, would you please, by your Spirit, identify where we need to say, you're king. Perhaps it's over some hard providence, some things that you've put into our life that we don't understand why. And today it's turning from a heart of sorrow to a heart of gratitude. Perhaps just to anchor and to say, Lord, I know that you're in control, even though I don't see why. I know you are. Or maybe it is today that somebody would say, Lord, today is the day when I need to choose to receive Christ. Father, today speak to us by your Spirit. Cleanse us of our lack of allegiance to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. That's my King. He's supreme. God bless you.